special sliding on the instrumental nordic combos twist your mental life forbidden peace to the public and power to the people we done leveled up again in this space where the vulnerable are powerful and the most gangster thing you can do is serve we have taken it to the next next level and we appreciate you joining us for this journey on the all the way live podcast this is indeed the all the way live podcast and what we do with my brother miles is come here to give that carefully curated content for your cranium we dedicate ourselves to unpacking all sorts of information and topics and we bring them to the people man and we do this thing for one reason is because we know people are going through it you know, we know people are in some dark places. We know people are going through some challenging times. And what we hope to be is a space of positivity so that people can come here to this show, get some get some energy from the show, get some motivation from the show, and enjoy some interesting information to help you sound smart when you're around your folks and your friends. That's what we bring to you weekly. Big facts. And then if you like what you hear, make sure that you like, comment, subscribe, jump on board to this thing, join this community that is represented both by Exeter being in the building by way of Johannesburg, my brother's way over there, Chestnut Tones. And you know what's going on this side. Chicago's in the building. This podcast is recorded on stolen land. This land was cared for by the Potawatomi people, the Council of the Three Fires, and the violence done to remove those First Nations people from this land is inseparable from the violence that we see in this city today, this country today, and this world today. And as we prepare for another Chicago summer, I'm feeling it. So I'm acknowledging it. And we're going to do everything we can to, to, to put a show of resistance to the trend that we see of violence in, in this city. And uh, we're going to stand together in solidarity. And, and we're going to take care of ourselves and our mental health the whole way through. Uh, so that's how, we, that's how we lifting up love for black and brown people the world over. That's how we lifting up love for indigenous people the world over. That's how you know the intro's over. Let's get into the show. Yeah, 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 I get that, I get that, but is we live, though? Is we, like, all the way live, though? You heard? My brother Miles, what we do over here, man, is highlighting people that do that good work. We, as two people that do take impact work so passionately, and I'm so excited because this week we have a host of impact-related topics that we're going to be getting into, but this week, we wanted to highlight uh, our, our own Mandula Foundation. Call me taking a sip. It's all good. Caught me sipping. <laughs> but yeah, man, it's a, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to, to watch uh, not only this podcast grow, but to watch our endeavors outside of it um, continue to, to transform, uh, to expand their impact, but also to align with all of the things that uh, we're about. So you've seen us in this show do our best always to lift up uh, other creators, other people in the impact space, um, people that have led the way for us and people that inspire us. Um, and Mandulo, we've we've been able to form some incredible relationships with some incredible partners that have allowed us to to reach and and teach and and feed some kids. And we're expanding uh, and and growing in in a new and, and different way. Uh, but I'll let, I'll let Zoe say a little bit more about that. I think what's real, what's been real cool throughout this whole process to humanize it has been the reception that our communities have given us to trust us in doing this type of work with them. And when we think of the type of growth that we've been having, having as an organization in terms of the scope and scale of people we want to impact, it is it's not lost on us that it's only because you know, places like Ndetelelo Foundation, places like um, the the Chicago Pantry, you know, a lot of the University of Chicago, Shevning, as I've shown over here, who have supported us, who have allowed us to work with them, Fountain of, Fountain of uh, Love Foundation. So it's humbling to be working with the community in that manner. And I'm very excited about this uh, these new partnerships that we're forming and this next level of helping other organizations that also want to dive into this field big facts so uh if you're one of the organizations out there that we have reached out to spotlighted 
um, if, if we've been communicating back and forth, if you're seeing this, if you are in this space, um, our doors and DMs are open for all type of productive conversation. Uh, we want to link arms. Uh, we want to build together. And uh, yeah, it's amazing. I, I, we're, we're, we're morphing kind of uh, Mandulo into, into a solution house, into a space that can, that can serve and, and put forward uh, opportunities to, to collaborate on, uh, in thought on ways that we can have impact. And uh, it's not lost on me that organically solution house is what we just, this is the term that we decided to, to coin for where we're, what we're building on the Mandulo side and live house was the, is the long existing term for what we've tried to build on the creative side. Uh, it's all about home. It's all about community. And uh, that shows through in every way. Uh, very coincidental, by the way, which lets you know that it's a God thing. Um, and on that note too, you know, uh, we, we, we lift up, we, yo, man, you know, what's very difficult whenever we speak about these, about these conversations is that when you're front-facing some of the stories that the kids go through, and just to put one in, for example, is that we were recently working with a young lady who we've, who we've highlighted a few times on the show, uh, who was, who won the, who won our first scholarship award that we had given out. And you hear her story in term, in how she was abandoned, uh, found as an orphanage, the hardships that she went through. Uh, just a, a very grueling, sad story, you know? And um, I, I think part of the conversation we're going to get into in terms of organizations that are in impact is you never always fully get to see either the people that are doing the work or the people that are getting the work. It's always they're marketing, uh, it's always they're marketing the leadership in that structure or they're marketing the, the kids in that structure, but they, it's never very clear what what that is, you know? And so for us, we try to put those stories out front. Those are the people that we're working for. Those are the people that we're reaching for. And th those are the lives that we try to change for real. It's quite our emotional change. actually. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really is. And, and trying to change are changing. Um, and, you know, I think what the final punctuation, I think on, on this whole, this whole segment should be that like, we didn't know we could do it till we did it. And I want, to emphasize and continue to, you know, appreciate the people who've been examples for me. And in any way I can be an example for others that like, you can go from sitting on the couch, not knowing what to do about what you see happening in the world and build towards making an impact um, that, that not only feels real, looks real, feels good, but is real, is good uh, for not just you, but for others, you'll be surprised that how many people you can reach, teach, and feed uh, once you get up and decide to do it. Some of the people that have acted in that way saw something that they were against and started their own organization are the three co-founders of the BLM movement. Miles, with your permission, can we get into this week's StumbleUpon? Yes, sir. <laughs> Gotta love it. Bro. Gotta love it. I'm just so appreciative of you for working the boards. I'm so appreciative of the space that we've carved out in between shows to try and elevate the show. Shout out to the YouTube audience. Anybody that's seeing the, the, the elevation, some of the new things that we've added to the show. Um, we appreciate y'all and we, and I appreciate you, uh, different levels. It's, it's, it's levels to this and we advancing them. We climbing the rungs. Check this out though. BLM is, uh, is, is, is facing a little bit of scrutiny, particularly one of the, the three co-founders, as my brothers mentioned, uh, Miss, Miss Patrice Khan colors, uh, who along with Alicia Garcia and, uh, Opal Tometi founded, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, or at least kind of coined the term and started to organize the broader national effort. And um, Miss Colors has uh, recently come under uh, investigation uh, under the spotlight for some of her, her real estate purchases and maneuvers. Um, and it's looking, 
it's it, the, there, there's insinuations flying around that maybe that money uh, might have been related to donations to Black Lives Matter. Uh, you hate to see it. Uh, and I don't, uh, oof, this is a sticky one, bro. It's, it's a sticky one because we are participants of the Black Lives Matter movement, active participants. My brother Miles, um, you shared over that time the, the work that you were doing in Chicago in helping organize some of the larger marches that were happening in uh, during the Black Lives Matter movement in Chicago, you know, that whole social uptick. And what's interesting about that is that it was one of the first and few instances we've seen a large pouring in of um, funding for a single organization, right? It's not the largest, but it's like o- over the, the COVID period, we saw large spikes in where money was moving towards. And in this particular time, in this particular instance, the Black Lives Matter organization was a, a recipient of that, raising almost 95 million US dollars up until 2020, as recent as 2020. That's a lot of cash. That's a lot of cash. cash. Uh, I think what's what's important, um, we'll start a little bit with the structure of Black Lives Matter um, and then kind of get into the specifics of the allegations that were that were have brought us to the conversation. Um, But Black Lives Matter has always had, in spite of, you know, being able to point to these three women as part of the organizational structure. Um, has it's always had a diversified leadership model, which means that in different cities uh, and even within cities, different groups under the under the banner of the movement for Black Lives, um, and sometimes connected with larger, more national structures of Black Lives Matter, and sometimes not, uh, have been operating and organizing with abolition of police as kind of a loose framework that united unites and is kind of a through line through all of their work. Um, but their approaches, um, the ways in which that, how many people are a part of each of these different, different groups or subgroups, um, varies a lot. So I think it's important to, to say that the intentionally, the, I think black lives matter is a movement that has used a diversified leadership model to ensure that, no individual person's actions or ideas are greater or more important than the movement at large, right? Now, in spite of that, these three women have, you know, who are credited with kind of being the first to to, to proliferate the term and, and kind of start building the momentum of the movement um, are seen as the heads and are, and for better or worse, the what they do certainly does affect the rest of the movement. But it's also important to note that uh, all three of those women have resigned in their roles as founders and directors. I mean, you can't resign. You're always the founder, but they've resigned from official leadership positions in Black Lives Matter, um, the Global Network Foundation. And uh, so I think that 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 colors this story in an interesting way, too. The reason we're being very specific about our language on this matter is because it is very sensitive. Black Lives Matter movement represents for most of us what would be the 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 arc of the arc of the 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 social change that happened over COVID when there was the largest march that happened ever with a million people marching at the same time. <clears throat> this trumps the million man march ironically because it was happening all around the world, right? It was millions and millions of people. Um, a, a true moment in what many will remember as a, as a revolutionary moment for us, right? If you think about it, like I just mentioned, the Million, uh, the million Man March with Dr. King, when they led that, that was a monumental moment. And so was this, and it was led by the Black Lives Matter movement, started as a hashtag on Twitter, um, as this hashtag Black Lives Matter. So it's important to approach this with care because when allegations such as misuse of money, like we've been hearing in this particular instance, that um, uh, the co-founders and as recent as in 2020 had bought homes to the tune of 6.4 million US dollars. So <clears throat> this is a large, um, this is a quite a quite a bit of spending, right? Now, what I don't agree with, what I don't agree with 
is is purchases being scrutinized unless they can actually be proven to be um, from a, an instance of fraud, right? So if somebody makes a large purchase, I don't I don't say no. That person is stealing directly. There's a lot that you can do with it. So what I've decided to do, brother Miles, is go and do what would simply just be called an investigation line on when the money was when the money was done, right? So if you just take linearly, just look at the points in time where things happened. When was the first house bought? When was Black Lives Matter started? When did the movements, when did, uh, <clears throat> when did um, opportunities of additional income become realized by the leaders in that movement that would justify that type of spending? You know, real high level finance stuff that we bring to here. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh man, they got they got private eyes way on this one. You know what I'm saying? They got they got Chestnut uh, Incorporated on the case. This is this is deep. Like, all right, brother. Kobe. Yeah, hit us with the timeline. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. What happened? What happened? What had happened? <laughs> so essentially, 2013 is when Black Lives Matter, when uh, the George Zimmerman. Um, first Black Lives Matter push happened, right, in 2013. Um, this happened at a time where we were still in university. I don't, I, I went to that march, I believe. I don't, I don't recall if you were at that march, but it was happening in pockets and universities throughout the U.S. and um, actually the African and Black Latinas Association at the U of I did a great job at handling, at like being able to spread that. Um, some of our good friends were leading that, which was pretty cool. So that's in 2013 for context. 2015, Black Lives Matter is officially founded through a hashtag. 2016, um, after 2015, um, you have, in 2016, the first purchase of land by uh, a Black Lives Matter co-founder for the, to the tune of 510,000 USD. That's the first home. The first time injection of capital could justify an expense of that much is in 2018 when Khan publishes a uh, best-selling book. So she might have signed a deal over there, a publishing deal that could give her the cash to be able to do it. Um, and then, in my opinion, the and then in 2020, she signs a multi-platform deal with Warner Brothers. So between 2018 and 2020, there seems to have been a period where an income of cash can be justified for the expenditure that happens thereafter in 2021, where she's going on a house shopping spree, as they call it, buying up three additional homes over that time. So where it stands out is between 2016 and 2018. That's a wee bit fishy for my books. I, I, I see where you're coming from, and I appreciate you outlining the the, the timeline in, in that way. Um, I don't know what outside of Black Lives Matter uh, Miss Colors might have been you know, like, I don't know what type of other jobs or sources of income that she might have had um, outside of that. I know a little bit more about where those different sources of income stand today. Um, but that's an interesting, that's an interesting take on it. You know what I mean? To, to like, yeah, I, I, I don't know. When you say that you, there's no justification for the spending 2016 to 2018, you're mostly talking about um, the the actual. <laughs> you're actually talking about the spending, or like you're only talking about influxes from Black Lives Matter, right? So when when reporting on the spending, <laughs> you can can you hear that? I wasn't sure if y'all could hear it. <laughs> this is this is recorded live in the hood, ladies and gentlemen. So I wasn't sure if I tried to play through it. <laughs> yeah. Those are yeah. definitely sounds of the hood for sure. That's for sure. This is this is South Shore ASMR for y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Big facts. My bad. <laughs> so when I say there's no justification for spending, um, over that same period of time, that's when uh, Colors, who is the co-founder who made the purchases, that's when she said her majority of her work was coming from Black Lives Matter, so she was able to give herself a salary justifying 120000 USD a year. So that is the premise that we're taking it on, right? What she said she was worth based on what her income earning potential was at that time. Um, 
so like I said, there is a period where that increases and she's clearly made this, um, you know, moves outside of Black Lives Matter to be able to justify the type of uh, spending that she does to the best of my knowledge. But there is a period of time where there is expenditure that is irregular and compounded by the fact that the last um, the last tax report that was given was in 2020 or 2019, and they still have yet to file for their 2020 or 2021. Um, that is also indicative of either ignorance or of uh, ignorance or of uh, the dubious behavior. I, 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 so one thing I don't want to I don't want to conflate Miss Color's finances with the overall finances of of BLM, and I think that while obviously as the founder and executive director, their allegations certainly put her in this position where that's the that's part of the question but i'm i would say that just in terms of blm not filing those documents for and it's and it's again we're, we're speaking about specifically uh the black lives matter global network foundation which is an acronym that is a waste of time because it's so long but you know what I'm saying? So that's why we keep using BLM, but we're actually talking about the specific arm and outreach of it that was owned by another company beforehand. And so when I looked into why they've been able to get away with not releasing that document for so long, it, a lot of it has to do with them moving around from being owned by another company. Whether you want to, if you want to take that as shady, I ain't even mad at you, bro. I think, but the, I think the, the larger issue that I kind of saw with like this issue that with, this whole story is that okay so she buys she buys these homes right so like let's say the homes are all good let's say it's legitimate let's say she wrote she raised uh you know you, you save money bro like i don't make $120,000 a year and i'm about to make a real estate purchase for of a comparable size to her first purchase right and so there are ways to there are ways to manage to make that actually happen so she's bought a series of homes, right? If real estate's her side hustle, that's cool. The thing that brought the that brought the whole story to attention into a head this week uh, is actually specifically related to um, a six million dollar mansion that they purchased um, last year in 2021 uh, in October. And what I the the thing that is more of a sticking point to me than even like the 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 prior homes is that they purchased this for six million dollars from a real estate agent uh named Dane 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 Pascal who used to work for the real estate firm that colors runs and he bought it for three point one million dollars. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You're introducing new information into this right here. You ain't notice? I did not know this. What you right. say? Are you, t- are you the- telling me in layman terms that it was a flip? Yeah, they flipped it. They flipped it, and this is and this is what I'm this is what I'm saying because like we don't have access to to her complete financial records. We don't have access to the to the obviously because they haven't been released. The Black Lives Matter. I'm gonna go give y'all the whole thing again. Global Network Foundations. Right. Because we're not just speaking about BLM in general, but we haven't gotten that particular branches financial records back. Um, But this was the bigger issue to me. Right. Because that can all be cleared up, I think. But homie bought this in October of 2020. He bought this October 2020 first of 2020. He sold it October 27th. For almost double the price. And there's no explanation for why he doubled they doubled the price right and that so that i'm like i right, that's a little bit off right so go boom they they explain in the situation uh they interview miss colors she says uh that the home was purchased as a safe place, as a safe space for creators um, to work on BLM and abolition-related content uh, in, in, in the home, right? Um, but internal documents from BLM circulate and have some very specific language about 
killing the story, about working the massaging the angles from which they're being attacked. And that was the issue, and that and that's the more difficult to explain aspect of this. Um, and so, I, from just from the perspective of the research I did, I just wanted that's the that's the point that I'm more like, it ain't looking great. So, what do we do in lights of this type of information? Because the movement is still as important. Um, they have done a lot in the time that they've raised ninety-five million dollars, twenty-five million of that, uh, twenty-three point four million of that has been distributed to local uh, BLM network organizations or other local um, activist organizations. And so even in that sense, that would be three times higher than what the usual amount of um, amount of uh, CSR cash be. So they're, they're clearly, you know, doing things at a higher standard than most people are doing, which, which needs to be, uh, which needs to be taken into consideration because just breaking the whole thing down doesn't make sense. We, as we have mentioned on the show, we run an organization, an NGO. Um, we have released uh, our impact reports. We repeat, we release our, um, you know, no, we explain all the work that we've been doing over time. Granted, we're nowhere near where Black Lives Matter was in, in the scope of the type of income that they have. But I do believe in being prepared for those types of things, which is why we've almost to a detriment towards our growth have focused so intently on the administrative process of things. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hurt us at, at, at some points, you know, it's some uh, opportunities have slipped by us um, because of our, because of our uh, approach to wanting to make sure everything is done by the book so that when it does happen and a large income of cash comes in, um, our system will be at a place to accommodate it because we've done all about, we've checked all of our boxes. Big facts. Uh, unimpeachable, I believe is the term that you're looking for. That's what you want your stuff to be. Unimpeachable, right? Yeah. Um, be willing to stand up to any type of scrutiny. Uh, and under this scrutiny, let's be clear, right, that, you know, folks from BLM, GNF, and uh, as well as Ms. Colors have come out to deny that there's any connection between her financial purchases and donations that went to BLM. Um, they specifically said that they cannot and did not commit any organizational resources toward the purchase of Ms. Colors' personal property. Um, and so they've also responded uh, and demanded that I believe the New York Post um, remove the insinuation that funds from Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation were used indirectly or directly to purchase real estate. So they 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 maintain that this that the, everything is above board. Um, and I think I love the way where you took it to what our approach and what other folks that are in the impact space can take from this and learn from this. And I think it's that tri transparency has got to be a priority. That's number one, right? And two that. Maybe we do need to think differently about what leadership looks like in in the space of impact, um, specifically with grassroots organizations, specifically with community-led organizations. There's something very valuable about having a figurehead, about having somebody that you can point to that is the representation of what you believe in, and and who gives people hope uh, for their own ability to grow into and to be able to impact, um, and what one person can do. But I also think that we're, we've come to this we've come to this space where we've seen models. We've even highlighted some here, right? Um, Good Kids Mad City, which we highlighted two weeks ago, is an organization with a truly uh, diversified leadership model to where you can't, there is no one, three group of people uh, that runs it, right? It's it's truly it's truly a shared responsibility. Um, and in a lot of in a lot of ways, Black Lives Matter is that. Uh, with the exception of, of of these three ladies, and I think benefits from that. Uh, and so, how can we, not only as organizers and activists, think about systems and structures that allow us to collaborate without having one single person or even a, a handful of people as a linchpin whose own faults and 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 challenges reverberate throughout the entire organization? Um, and even as individuals, how can we start to think about the ways in which 
we put people up on pedestals about what it what it means to have the amount of scrutiny under the surveillance that we have now like when somebody is the founder of a movement the face of a movement that's so much scrutiny so does any of us even want that uh as leaders and organizers we have a lot to think about you know what gets messed up mouse is that people it's like companies do well with having a figurehead what like um for directional purposes you know for uh, marketing related reasons it, it is important to be able to know okay who's who's handling which part of this ship at all times it makes decision making a lot more streamlined it's it's quite um it's quite effective in that way you know it's really when uh there is a, a fine line between decentralized leadership like we have in the comments or um you know a, a single figurehead single figurehead leader it's crazy, man. It's crazy to think about. Like, I'm looking at these pictures, man, and, and I'm. it's crazy to think about the temptation that that represents. It's crazy to think about what what it's like to go from to nothing to be dealing with millions of dollars, multiple commas. I appreciate what you laid out in terms of our approach of doubling down on the administrative side, on the accounting side, before we even have anything to account so that by the time it hits our account, it's going to be counted correct. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, but this, but it's a, I've been thinking so much about that Dave Chappelle quote, um, where it's from an interview. I think it's almost about 10 years old now where he says, weak people don't get to be in the spotlight, be at the forefront of, of media that you weak people don't get to sit in that space. And when you see them start to break or when you see them, start to act in a way that you don't understand. It's important to remember that maybe the environment's a little sick. Um, and so prepare yourself for that. They will give you the tools that you need to destroy yourself. Uh, and you have to fortify your spirit and your plans and your intentions and your community against that. Um, fortunately, there are ways to do that. Fortunately, there are ways to organize uh, and do that as a collective. And that, that leads quite well into our, our next segment. Damn, what? You're a professional. Good news. <laughs> Indeed. We come bearing good news, man. Look, by a margin of 10 percentage points. And that's how these things happen, man. You know, final minutes, fourth quarter, game seven, buzzer beater. By a margin of 10 percentage points, the staff at JFK 8 and Amazon Warehouse on Staten Island in New York opted to form the firm's first American union. It happened. It happened. We've been covering Amazon on this podcast before. We've covered Tesla on this podcast before, highlighting uh, over the COVID, especially the some of the, the working conditions that the people were going through and just kind of the horrid work experience. I wonder, Miles, if uh, all of this talking that we've done on Amazon and Tesla is what's been getting in the way of us being able to close uh, some important things with them. If it is, then we'll partner with Google. We ain't scared. What up? Nah. But uh, that I would, I would, I would, I would take that. I would be happy if if this reached Bezos and them, and that's why they were saying nah to the to the think big space. We could put it out there. I like. I'll take it as a compliment. I'll take it as as a, I'll charge it to the game of growth, right? But more importantly, as we talk about this conversation. Amazon formed a union. I'm ready to pop bottles and, and, and have champagne and confetti, let confetti rain down. But Zway, what is a union? So what a union is, Miles. <laughs> but like that's, what type of transition is that? <laughs> Throw specific questions. I thought we were a lot smoother than that in our transitions. Since when do we start interviewing each other like this? 
<laughs> my bad, dude. I'm just because like because I had I, I, I had this moment where I realized like, you know, sometimes where you're doing like you you a bunch of things in your life line up, right? Like your interests, your hobbies, your workspace, all of that stuff lines up. When this story hit, it was it caught me after being like delved into a bunch of um debates and literature about socialism, Marxism, communism, democratic socialism, the differences between all of those two, all of those things and the mechanisms that define them. And so unions are a big part of that. And so when this story hit, I was like, oh man, look at the news lining up with how I'm spending my time and and, and help me to understand. But I realized that almost all of what I was, how I was interpreting the story was due to the readings that I had just recently done. And I would have been like, how, what would be my understanding of this if I hadn't just been doing those readings, right? So as we explain for the homies, which is what we do, right? A union or a, a labor union or a trade union is an organized group of workers who unite to make decisions about conditions affecting their work, right? Uh, and the part where that hits home for us is a typically that organizing is built around bringing some type of justice, financial safety, economic justice to the workplace uh, and you know to the, to the community at large. So started in the 1900s with in the U.S. when there was huge commercialization of mobile of uh, vehicles being made, the Ford factory, things like that. That's where you really started seeing uh, the collective bargaining power of uh, unions and what you'd have. Uh, just essentially, it's a like Miles said, a group of people getting together and forcing the company to make changes in ways that are more beneficial to employees. Uh, so much so that in by 1960s, 85% of people in the U.S. were within unions. Now, over time, the union power and bandwidth has um, has has decreased slightly, especially now with these new age type of uh, these these new front running king of the markets. You know, Amazon, Facebook, uh, Google, who do things by their own practice. So. Uh, there's been a a change in the way that unions are formed, which is why this comes as a particular type of success because they've been trying to start unions in Amazon since 1998 when it was first using uh, cell phone service, uh, when it was first using um, call centers, right? And it's it's a seemingly the same type of battle led by this gentleman here, Chris Smalls, what they were saying is that, bro, they just need a little bit more break time. 20 minutes break time. 20 minutes is what they're asking for. 20 minutes break... Oh, my goodness. Let's go, let's go get me fired up. 10 minutes break time. Um, increased salary to $15 per hour, which was not there uh, before. And they also want to be allowed to attend the non-union abolishment meetings. Tech, actual term. Yeah, big facts. Uh, so what's important to take from from everything my brother just delivered is that uh, Amazon is very against the unionization of its workers. Um, they argue that having a direct relationship with the company is what's best for our employees. Um, I would argue that having a direct relationship with the company is only best for the people that get mad money out that company that have stocks and, and, and at the high level, right? I, I would say that, um, sure, you want to have a relationship with your company, but you should also have a relationship with your coworkers um, and with the collective, right? This is, this is a, th- like, they've gone really far in being anti-union. <laughs> G, like, it's, do you know? It's wild. <laughs> Yo, like, it's wild. They, they, that's, that statement just sounded real sweet, right? But they've, they have gone... Uh, so Whole Foods, which is under Amazon, right? They sent them their whole entire Whole Foods uh, employment fleet a 45-minute video <laughs> on on the on the evils of unions, right? Uh, and to help, the videos featured sections to help managers deal with potential un- uh, unionizing. They put up signs all throughout Amazon. <laughs> Uh, displaying the evils of of, of unionizing, right? Uh, and and they encouraging employees to snitch on other employees who are u- forming groups and sitting in meetings. Um, 
this is this is it's looking mighty Orwellian out here, bro. Like it's looking crazy. Um, in the chats, we have Amazon equals Babylon plus overnight delivery. Um, and depending on the item that you're buying, same day is quite convenient too. Same day is mighty convenient. So in this particular instance, this is the first U.S. union that's formed on Amazon, led by a gentleman named Chris Smalls. Chris Smalls had a what would what is accurately titled as a defamation campaign against him. Which are things that happen all the time. You hear Richard Branson talking about that happening with him when British Airways, when he was uh, launching Virgin Active and British Airways spent $4 million calling this dude all sorts of pervs and hiring secret detectives to chase him around. That's that's real. That, that went to court. <laughs> that's in the court papers. And British Airways have to apologize publicly. All to say, these types of things happen. Um now it's coming out that Hillary Clinton is spot was spying on Donald Trump. All to say, big corporate plays these types of games. So Chris Smalls, who is the leader, was said to be illiterate. You're said to be, um, you said to be ignorant, and um, yeah, man, he had a, a large defamation uh, campaign against him. I hope you know they coming for us with all them same terms. Oh, <laughs> Those <man>. guys are. <laughs> don't know what they're talking about they're you know they're undereducated you know what I mean underqualified yeah uh we're black bro (laughs) it's coming to show but they could not stop my boy Chris Smalls man they tried to fire my mans he came back to feed the workers right he hooked up with his homie Derek Palmer his collaborator uh and they're they now are leading a union that represents over 8,000 workers who work at the same warehouse, right? Uh, you can do it. You can, you can, you can start a movement. These guys pride themselves, and and in a lot of their interviews, are talking about how they just they were just normal workers. They didn't consider themselves activists. They didn't consider themselves, you know, about movements or social justice. But they looked at the environment. They looked at their circumstances and decided they could change them. Uh, and now that they've said, now they've said they've been contacted by over 50 other sites uh, all over the country that also want to unionize, and even outside of the country, right? In South Africa, India, Canada, uh, Amazon is global, and globally the workers are are reacting. Um, bringing it back to the U.S., there was actually another movement in Alabama to form a union uh, that was even more that included even a larger group of workers, right? Uh, People clearly want the opportunity to collectively bargain um, and to be able to hold some type of power in the places that they that they work at. So the fight does not stop here. They've unionized. That's great. And in the words of the great Dave Chappelle, congratulations. Now they come to get you. And that's exactly what uh, is facing these guys. Amazon is already set to appeal that uh, the union saying that it was done under uh, is that uh, Chris Smalls and their campaign was in um, was against company policy. Uh, it, it goes it goes quite far. So there's a lot of what's what's important to us to understand about a union is that unions are are an organization of their own. They have um, corporate structures, they have leadership structures in there. So it it, it really is almost a formation of a, uh, an advocate comp- an advocacy company overnight, right? And it's, it's, it's quite a big task. And one of the things that Amazon um, was kind of banking on was that Chris Smalls being the person who's leading that movement would mean that um, that sort of responsibility or the ability to actually get this to pass through wouldn't happen because he's just a black dude with chains on. So what comes next after this is that there's the negotiation process that Amazon has to take on. Amazon has to be like, all right, cool. Are we willing to pay these guys $15 an hour? $15 an hour is not, is not that much, but that's what they're fighting to get. Um, understanding that this union only is in one facility. So this can spread in different places, you know, and, uh, Amazon has been able to get away with these types of things for a while because, you know, when they were releasing like, yo, we're coming into a different country, into a different state, we're shopping, they were literally shopping for states. Um, They went to Staten Island and Staten Island were like, no, this is a unionizing 
a pro-union uh, area. They packed up their HQ and they they left, taking with them billions of dollars that they're going to build a headquarter over there, um, and decided to break it up into these small little uh, these small little eight you know eight thousand per types of uh, types of uh, centers, which is what allows them to be the second largest private employer in the U.S., employing close to one million people. Now, what's crazy is that one million of these people is unable to speak on behalf of any of the people with them, which is why this union is uh, pretty much a is a good win towards something that can allow for people not to have to hold their peace so that they can neatly pack iPhone cases, bro. Come on. Yeah, we're we're in this neatly pack iPhone cases. <laughs> no, they Amazon be packaging it. They, they be they be boxing them up good. <laughs> boxing them good. Boxing them up good is the name of the episode for sure. <laughs> but uh, yo, it's 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 very encouraging to see this, right? Um, but we should also acknowledge, like you said, that the that the fight continues, and it's a it's a real uphill fight. Uh, the number of American workers who are represented by union drops every year, right? Uh, and reached a new low in twenty twenty one. Companies don't want this. Um, companies are incentivized against this, right? In a in a position where people need jobs and are willing to work for less than will sustain them because they got to eat something. The ability for those workers to, to join together, to talk about what they're being paid, to talk about the facilities, to talk about their experience, to lean on each other, to document those things, form arguments and, and bargain, negotiate, on their own behalf is something that corporations just don't want to put up with. Cause if they don't have to, then everybody's on their own and they make more money. And in this country specifically in the United States, we've been, we've been brainwashed is almost the word I want to use to be so afraid of words of, of, of systems of thought that criticize capitalism. Um, but when you hear me do that on this podcast, when you hear us do that on this podcast, it's because there is a there is a tendency toward worker exploitation under this current system of capitalism that we have. And you're seeing people fight up and fight and take up arms against it in a variety of ways. Uh, and if you want to be educated about the these systems, about unions, about uh, what socialism means, minus big red scary flags and and Mao and Stalin and all that stuff, but the mechanisms that actually can work, um, then look up some of those terms that that I was looking up. Look up unions, look up co-ops, look up uh, limited equity housing co-ops, look up social, uh, look up democratic socialism, uh, look up social democracy, uh, and get in tune. And look up yo ops too. Look out Yo ops. <laughs> look out for your ops. <laughs> Keep a lookout for your ops. Quite importantly, quite importantly. Uh, Mr. Miles Xavier, people keep coming back to this portion of the show. It's the one that gets us the most amount of views. Some might say it's what we do best. Tabernacle. This one's special. It's gotta be. It's gotta be. This is this is the one that we we're waiting on for a while. And we were able to get something from Gerard Carmichael. Yo, this was pretty this was pretty cool. And there was so much to review. There's so much to review. We know there's a Dirk album. We know this. You know, yep. there's the ESC album. And Doug. You keep we gonna we we gonna talk about this. We're gonna talk about why you keep leaving Doug. Out of things, I even as we leave, EST and Doug out of things, Dirk out of things, new Vince Staples dropped, you know, big crit, Wiz girl talk. We know, we gonna get there. We gonna get there. That new Star Dustin Conrad, that new Sid. We know. We know. We gonna get there. 
But this but right the, here is, the, is important. In the interim, man, we have covered Gerard Carmichael's work before. I was, after I watched this, I immediately texted you. I was like, Miles, I gotta know what you think about this Roth Daniel special, Gerard Carmichael's last offering. Man, I, I was, I was blown away watching this, right? Um, but then I was also like, after, after, like, you know, kind of processing all the parts of the special, um, I remember that this is kind of in line with, with what he's given us, right? This person, we saw, we talk about every episode of the show that the vulnerable are powerful. Gerard Carmichael is somebody, and his entire family, it seems like, are people that are willing to be vulnerable. Uh, for the benefit of of putting and capturing real moments on screen, um, relatable challenges that I think have an incredibly deep value in helping other people process things that are going on with them. Um, so this special, which is the closest thing you could relate it to, is a stand up special. But I, I, I mean, it's more special than stand up. Um, but it also relates very directly to if you haven't seen his uh, special home movies and Sermon on the Mount, which aren't comedy specials, but interviews with his family. Uh, this is just a, a, the pinnacle, it seems like, of him sharing and, and, and bearing his soul for, for people to see. Um, and it's, I found it moving, uh, useful, informative, beautiful, bro. I've been a Gerard Carmichael fan for a while, and he's always been one of my sleeper favorite comedians. Um, I've found him from uh, Love at the Store 2012, some around the same time where you had uh, who we covered last week, um, Sam J coming out around the same time, Michael Shea coming out at the same time. Um, a, a very strong class, even Childish Gambino at that time was uh, coming out, a very strong class of creatives. Gerard Carmichael was always as Dave uh, as Dave Chappelle esque, right? As Dave Chappelle esque. I'm seeing in the comments we got. Has the nature of comedy changed for it to become more of a soapbox, or has it always been that? And that's a that's a very good very good question. So what is interesting about the progression of Gerard Carmichael, especially in this special, is you see his um, you see how playful he uses his comedic abilities to be able to communicate. Um, if you look at uh, home home videos and you look at Sermon at the Mount, it, as you said, it isn't comedic. Um, it's done very tastefully. It's directed beautifully. It's shot incredibly. Um, his his eye for aesthetic is, is spectacular. It's, it's second to none. I actually think he has some of the best visuals and executions on, um, on specials. Just a very interesting take on how to communicate with the audience the special before that standing in the middle of a crowd in the middle of a, of a room with the crowd standing around him right very different take onto how stand-up is presented so he's always pushed himself to be different in that way and this was a natural mature step to take to talk about something that isn't quite very funny to him all the way but still done quite hilariously yeah, bro, I love what you said about the aesthetic, like, from the jump, from the jump, from the snowy streets, like, that it opens up with, like, the the piano jazz that's playing, like, there's a maturity and there's a simplicity and a minimalism to just seeing him walk down the street, walk into the club, walk directly up onto the stage and just start and go. Um, and we'll kind of circle back to this at the end, but it feels like so fluid. Like this is one of the quickest ways to pass an hour. And it's because of he's so in command of everything that you're seeing and hearing the way he uses visuals and silence are, are dope. Um, and that all comes from like a self-awareness, bro. Like he just has a real, like a, a true self-awareness um, that like, I feel like, I feel you, man. There are moments of this that are, super funny like uh, there are a few of them i've laughed as hard at this as any other comedy special but that's not the overall you know what i mean the overall thing is this is deep this is life you know what i mean this the the camera angles when i think of when i think of 
the type of shots I would like to take or the type of shots I'd like to... Like, when you look at a moment, you're like, damn, man, I wish I could encapsulate this type of moment. Even something super basic, like when Gerard was talking to his father in Sermon on the Mount, and they're sitting next to each other outside in a fireplace. The shot, incredible. The texture of this special. It, with, he's dripped in gold, you know, looking, looking good. It looks fly. It's super, super fly, which is homage to the... It's, it's homage to comedy, you know, like... That's what stand-up's for. You can show up, you look fly on some Eddie Murphy raw shit, uh, both wearing red if you want to put those combinate, if you want to, if you if you believe in conspiracies. But all to say, it looked really, really cool, which is important because the the subject matter was heavy. It was heavy. Yeah, so getting into it, right, the kind of first half of the show was devoted to... Um, the father figures in his life, his father, his mother's father, his father's father, and a uh, consistency of infidelity that has that has characterized their relationships with their family. Um, and relatable. <laughs> the vulnerable, the powerful now. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And it was, it was, there was a lot in um the way that he's able to connect and tell you something so specific about his life that is immediately relatable in its specificity right like so much of this i i i connected with um being a son watching my dad grow uh our relationship changing as i've gotten older he he is so uh he's spot on with a lot of the ways that he describes that relationship um and you feel the truth in it because he takes time when it's hard to say like i need that love from the audience right like he, he man so i don't want to get into the second half of the special yet let's stay on that first half a little bit man what did you what did you connect with how did you how did it make you feel so it the first half is definitely the more humorous side of the the special where you know he leaves with a lot more jokes up front. It's so funny those those gay jokes are some of the funniest things I've heard in a long long time, bro. Just so so authentic and so effortless, you know. Uh, so so that was really really funny. But you're right, he does get real deep into speaking about um yeah, he gets deep into speaking about secrets. I think I might have. Around, but he gets deep into speaking about secrets, um, especially infidelity. Uh, yeah, man, that that one definitely hits home for sure. You know, which is why the 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 the, the, the mental fight that he had to have going through that, explaining like, man, I I figured this out. Then I told my mother, and I told my my brother, and I had to figure it out. Yeah, you know that that whole experience is is a very it's a very interesting one. It's a very specific one. And it's one where you have to hold, you have to kind of tuck that in, you know, you have to take it, hold secrets and keep it pushing. Um, and to see it displayed like this definitely resonated. Yeah. And he's, he's masterful with it. Like he brings you into the story where he's telling his dad and he's telling you like, Oh, I was crying. He's crying on the phone. He's telling him like, I know everything. And then his dad goes, always knew you'd be the one. <laughs> like we i feel like i've 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 been in that situation like i like even his dad even him saying his dad saying like uh his dad was telling women that he was jerry rice hall of fame running back jerry rice and like the questions that he had that come from that like it was so it, it was it was super it was super real right and then even like <laughs> even like him describing like so I made my dad tell my mom and my dad made me and my brother take my mom out <laughs> <laughs> and then bring him back to the crib you know what I mean like I'm like bro this is and he says throughout the special that he's being honest because otherwise it's a waste of time and it pays off so well because like I mean, there's so much of like yep yep that part is the vulnerability is on a is on a is on a high level. So much so where it actually starts to deteriorate from being a comedy special, and it's just you. He's thinking in live, you know. Uh, he's just thinking live. So it's I wouldn't. 
it, it, this is as close to, let's say, Bird Revelation. You know, it's very Bird Revelation-esque yeah. if we're comparing it to, to Chappelle. Um, it's super, super fly. And, you know, we're, we're still waiting to see how far Gerard can go, but Gerard Carmichael could be the the cooler childish Gambino when it comes to the when it comes to the director sphere. See, I'm I'm like no cap. I've been comparing this dude to like watching this, bro. This meant like I like this more than I like like I mean, child, Atlanta is dope, but that's a whole different thing. That's like acting. Like this this delivering something real like this, like this man reminded me of James Baldwin the way he's sitting there. You know, from his physicality to the to the way that he expresses himself to the way that he knows when he has the crowd on a hook, uh, it's it's masterful, bro. Um, and so, yeah, we get to the the <laughs> I don't even know what to say. The not the punchline, uh, not the spoiler, but the he he uses the special as a way to to officially come out um, as gay and. Even in that was some of like the funniest jokes that I've that I've ever heard. Uh not ever heard, but some of the funniest jokes that were in the special. I think my so, favorite yeah. joke, my favorite joke, I think of the whole joint is when he's like, I know, me too. So talking about being in the shower, like, oh nigga, I'm really gay. <laughs> That's Yo, hilarious. That killed me, bro. Like, and Again, back to the self-awareness. People are clapping and applauding. He's saying, I want to I want to accept that, but it feels like I didn't earn it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, bro, he is he is on another on another level. Like telling people and him like them being angry and him being able to tell that they're tense like the whole time. So much of this, so much of this, bro. It's a unique experience. It's a very unique experience. And I think what great art allows you to do is to be able to empathize um, the emotions that are intended out. And I think he does a good job of doing that. You know, you feel for him through it. Uh, it's, done, it's done real well. It's done real well. I'm, I'm very glad this is the direction that Gerard Carmichael is taking. If you really think about it, dude, this is like elevated Michael Shea almost. You know, it's very personal, and Michael Shea does a lot of great outside, uh, you know, outside references. Not so, not as super interpersonal comedy, but in terms of a comedian's ability to just be there and have what they say be just incredibly brilliant, I'd, I'd yeah, I'd say Michael Shea is is a close comparison. Hey man, I I ain't mad at it, but to to me, um, to me, Gerard is in a is in a class of his own, man. Like even even and it relates to me to kind of like um, Isaiah Rashad, bro. You know, and like not to have a <laughs> not to connect it just because these are our favorite gay niggas, but I think it's I think there's something and 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 you kind of articulated this in a way that really resonated to me, but there's something different about how well these gentlemen before coming out during after have been able to articulate the experience of just being a black man period right and as a black man being able to relate to their experience so deeply especially talking about Isaiah Rashad for that music have to have gotten me out of dark places and dark situations and like it it was a uh, not a lesson because I've been trying to unlearn and learn about, you know, my relationship with my own sexuality and with homosexuality and, and understanding. But it was really a reminder that like, there's no limit to how somebody with a different experience can connect to you. And yeah. I think that's something that we need to lean on and recognizing the humanity in each other, um, learning how to, to, to stop the violence that we perpetrate against each other learning how to have the type of empathy that will carry us into a space where everybody feels respected and safe. Um, and I think the way that Gerard Carmichael laid out his experience, it can, this is a piece of media that can be part of a bridge to help um, other people get there. Brilliantly said, brilliantly said. For me, one of my favorites, specials in a minute, I really enjoyed it. Give it a solid four out of five. Yeah, 4. fuck it. It's a five for me. 
Full oh, five. Baby. Full five at a G. That's that's Full that's five. my thing, man. That's my thing. Full five. I, I rock with that. Um, like we said, man, it's a lot of it's a lot of it's the floodgates seem to have opened. It seemed like artists are anticipating the summer. So this was an amazing thing to be able to watch and, and check out and, and review for y'all. Um, but we know that there was so much music as we talked about earlier. Um even Jay even came out. <laughs> Jay even had a verse this week, right? Like, it's a lot. So we're gonna get to that. Go ahead. No, man, it's a it's a, it's a lot to be able to get to. Uh, we got the comments coming in. Uh, it's a damn full five. Give it a look. You know, it's it's great to have uh, open conversation, man. Because we we know. We know. We know y'all could be anywhere in the world getting your information from anywhere, getting your good vibes from not quite anywhere. Nobody does it like us, but you don't have to be here, but you are. And we appreciate that, man. This is a celebration of life. This is a celebration of celebrating. This is a celebration of how good it feels to be black. Don't it feel good way? It's my favorite thing. Round of applause. Everybody out there right now, snap your fingers, put your hands together for Zway, man. If you were the YouTube audience and you see these beautiful intros, these changes, uh, all the work that goes into this show between shows, um, we we both put in the work, but I got to lift up my brother for the visuals, man. It's getting crazy. It's getting, it's getting mad shareable. So go ahead and share that. Like, comment, subscribe, eat something delicious, hug somebody you love. Like that. Peace, water, we gone. Yeah, 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 I get that, I get that, but is we live, though? Is we, like, all...